Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. And with the grace of God, through people like you, I haven't had a drink since September 15th of 1972. And I'm real grateful to be here. I have felt a lot of gratitude this weekend. Yeah, listening to the speakers speak and just the overall feeling here has been one of gratitude. I want to thank uh, Linda for asking us here around the campfire. And I want to thank uh, the committee that said, agreed with her and said that was okay. And Johnny for making us feel welcome the first day. And everybody else, all of you for being here. Uh, I want to start out by telling you about my childhood. Um, you heard uh, Madeline speak on Saturday. You know, she's the bubbly poster child. They said, well, I'm a glum lot. <laughs> and I don't remember my childhood a lot. I have, uh, most of it's blacked out, but I have little pictures, and I'll share a couple of those pictures with you, and you can tell me if, see if you recognize what kind of a home I came out of. Uh, one of them that I have is my mom is uh, standing in the living room, and she's got a little square piece of paper, and she's jumping around. And she's happy, and she says, he brought it home. He brought it home. He brought home his whole paycheck. <laughs> Another one is my dad hiding behind the door and saying, you answer it. It's probably a bill collector. Because in those days, they could come out to your house. You know. Uh, another one is, and I was probably six or seven, my dad was on top of my mom, and he was choking her. Uh, they were on the kitchen floor, and I couldn't do anything about it. And I think she must have said call the police or something, uh, because my next thing I remember is the front door slammed and the car screeched out of the driveway and went down the street. Another one is she was hanging on his leg and he's walking towards the front door and he's all dressed up and he has a bow tie on and everything. She's saying, don't go out. Please don't go out. And uh, he shook her off and went out. Now, we can kind of figure out what he was doing, right? Yeah, he was drinking. And I had to be, I had to grow up and be an adult before I found out that my mom was drinking too. She had it stashed around the house. I never knew that as a kid. So both of them were uh, drinking pretty good, and that's that's the house I came out of. Now, uh, I happen to believe that, uh, no, no, that's not right. I happen to know that this program and these 12 steps and this program of recovery is an inside job. Because, see, that's where my problem was, was inside. And I had to have some sort of change that affected me internally. 
And that's what Chuck C used to tell me. Boy, this is an inside job. And so that's what I have to share with you, is what I felt inside and what happened. And what I felt growing up was uh, ungrounded and unfounded fear. I remember waking up for school and just having that fear in there. And when you come from that kind of a house, you don't, I didn't invite my friends over. Who wants to show them that? So I, I was a loner. I've been a loner most of my life. And I never did talk too much. My sister and my mother, they talked a lot and loud and fast, and I gave up after a while. I just was a quiet one. There's a quiet one in the corner. And uh, my, I showed it a lot through sickness. I had uh, tonsillitis, and I had asthma, and I had hives, and I had this, that, and the other. I had a speech defect. And that's the way that you could see that I was from a dysfunctional family, if you look. But back then, uh, people didn't look. Eventually, my dad and mom divorced. He used to be gone for three or four days at a time anyway. They eventually divorced, and he went back to Michigan. We were in California, in Los Angeles. And uh, then things got worse. Um, my mom decided that I was the target of her frustrations. And how do I know that? Well, I got beat, and I got beat a lot. Um, I can remember going to school with the, the outline of the belt, two of them across my face, purple. And nobody said anything. Everybody looked the other way. I think my crime was I I looked and acted somewhat like my dad. And I guess she still probably had some sort of anger going there, you know. <clears throat> so I got it. But the feelings I had inside was, like I said, I had that fear. And then a little later I had a lot of anger. And... That was basically it, fear and anger. When I was 13 years old, I went to a school dance, and somebody out in the parking lot had some alcohol, and I drank it. And uh, and I went down, and and something happened. That fear, gone. That anger, gone. I had that peaceful feeling. Everything was okay. I had found my answer. Alcohol wasn't my problem. It was my answer. Wrong one. <coughs> and I went back into the dance, and I looked for the prettiest girl, and I walked right up to her and asked her to dance, and she said, okay. This, this was good. Life was good. I wasn't in the corner anymore, you know. And I danced all night and had a great time, and, and that was the... Uh, that was going to be a problem because I started, you know, when you're 13, you can't get alcohol really easy. You have to be creative or a thief. And I was both. We had a little corner market called the Argentina Market. And I'd walk down there and sneak some Coors cans and slip them in my pocket and slip out. And I'd 
break into people's houses, neighbors, and they had alcohol, I'd steal that. Uh, sometimes I'd go down to college and bum. I find out if you ask people for three cents, nobody has three cents. They give you a nickel or a dime. So I'd say, you have three cents? I need to make a phone call. Pretty soon I'd have enough for a quart of Eastside beer. And then I'd go hitchhike until somebody older than me came along. And they'd, they'd usually buy the beer for me. So I could, I could continue to drink, even though I've never had a legal drink in my life. Because when I got here, I was 18. I'm 48 now. I grew up here. In these rooms, I grew up. Anyway, uh, I met a girl, and I thought she was going to be the answer to everything. And we got together, and eventually we got an apartment. And it didn't work real good. She was drinking with me. A lot of times the neighbors would call the police because of our fights. And she would, I think she hit me over the head with a frying pan one time and the police got there and I was laying out on the couch. They just laughed and left. <laughs> <coughs> and it was like that. But I need to tell you that it didn't take very long before alcohol quit working. And I couldn't get that peaceful feeling. It started working in reverse. Uh, I had a lot of self-hatred. I had, I'm one of those people that had grave emotional disorders, and, and I'm not stretching the truth. Um, because I contemplated suicide a lot, and I had ways that I could do it. And when I would drink, if I didn't go into a blackout, now I'm talking 15, 16 years old, I would get violent. I might put my bare foot through a plate glass window, which I've done. It's fine going out. It wasn't too good coming in. Uh, or, you know, punch something or throw something. In. Whenever we would get into one of these fights, I always hated myself a little more. Nobody has ever hated me like I did. Um, when I was in 11th grade, I think, I dropped out of school. But before that, I met a guy, and his name was Don. And I didn't know it at the time, but Don was in this program. All I knew is that I really liked to go by his house and hear what he had to say. There was always somebody there, and he was always talking. And they were talking about God, but they were talking about it in a way I hadn't heard before. And I was attracted. You know, we talk about attraction, not promotion. And Don had something in his eyes. I could see it. I could feel it. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm sensitive, and I feel things. I can pretty much tell when someone's lying and when they're not, you know. <clears throat> And he wasn't lying. He had an answer. He wasn't afraid. I looked in his eyes. He wasn't angry. So I kept uh, dropping by his house. Eventually, he told me about a little clubhouse in Pasadena, California, called the 202 Club. It was on 202 North Euclid. 
And we called it the 202 Zoo <laughs> because it was right down there in the heart of the city and anybody and uh, anything was liable to wander in there, you know. I mean, I, I went to meetings there and there'd be people babbling in the corner and stuff. And uh, I, I fit in. <laughs> it was the first place that had accepted me. And I didn't, I had such a hard time with this program. And I don't know if it was because of my age or or what, but I could not get this this thing called God. And I tried. I read the books. I memorized them, some of them. I had the entire chapter 5 memorized, the whole chapter, not just the part we read. And I had the 12 traditions memorized, and I had, you know, all the prayers memorized. So that I could come to meetings and I could talk to you people and talk program. But you know, when I finally heard Don say that in order to find the power greater than myself, I was going to have to stop drinking, uh, when I finally heard him say that, well, here's how that happened. Don was one of those people that people either loved him or hated him. One time I went over his house and he said, you've been coming over to my house for a year and you haven't tried a single suggestion I've said. What are you coming by for? <laughs> and, you know, he got my attention, got my ego involved, and so I, just, I decided I was going to quit drinking. And I went about two days and a neighbor asked me over to help him paint and offered me a beer and I took that and then I realized that I was going to quit, you know. I understand uh, both Bill W. And, and Dr. Bob. I understand both of their experiences because for the first year and a half, I, I lived in hell. This was not fun. I lived a double life, and I, I don't know if you've ever done it or if you're doing it, but it's hard. And that life is where you come to meetings and you talk the talk, but you you don't walk it. None of it's inside. It's all on your lips, you know. And so I would go to meetings and people would say, how are you doing? And I'd say, fine. But what they didn't know was back home, I'd see my reflection in the mirror and I'd spit at it. I'd sock myself, really. I hated my guts. And then I'd go to a meeting the next night, how are you doing? Fine. Talk about the steps, you know. I couldn't feel any of it. And I wanted to drink every day, every minute. And uh, that's called white knuckling, and, and, and it is hard. It is so hard. Um, <clears throat> I went on like that for about a year and a half, and I had married this same girl, and we were still fighting. I couldn't blame it on alcohol. You know, alcohol is a, a, a symptom of our disease. I had a, I believe that uh, alcoholism is physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And I had a spiritual disease. 
I was not at ease. And I hated being in my own skin. And I couldn't fit into the life around me. <coughs> and I'm <coughs> going to AA, and it's not working either. And I was scared. I'm still thinking about suicide. How can I sneak off? And we got into one of these fights, and she threw the dinner at me, and I jumped up and slapped her, and she got a little shiner under her eye. And uh, that worried me, you know, because it's hard to go to a meeting. And, well, where'd you get your black eye? And pretend like you have a program. See, the only thing I had in my life at that time was my AA image. That's it. Man, that's sad, you know. And I am just torn up inside. And I got to a meeting. It was a Saturday night downtown. I got to get my water just a second. Thank you. It was a Saturday night downtowners uh, at Lutheran Church in Pasadena, California. And there was about 150 people there. It was a big meeting. And it's not there anymore, by the way, because of uh, stupid little things. But anyway, uh, at that night, there was 150 people there. And I went up the stairs, and, and Don was there. Now, Don was my sponsor, and he did not need this microphone. If he talked, you could hear him at that Christmas tree without a microphone. <clears throat> and I think I must have asked him what was wrong or something. And I'm going to clean it up for you. <laughs> but this is what he said. He said, I'll tell you what's wrong, you son of a, you know. He said, for the last year and a half, your higher power has been your god dang intellect. He said, you've been so dishonest, you had me fooled. He said, look at her eye. Do you think anybody does this kind of thing that has a program? And I forgot to tell you that the 150 people stopped talking and looked our way. <laughs> So he was taken, uh, the last thing I had, that AA image, you know. He said, you know, he said, I love you, but I can't help you. Uh, he said, you are beyond all human aid. And unless you find a power greater than yourself, you're going to die. And he said, did you, do you know that, uh, you can die from alcoholism without picking up a drink. And I thought, wow, you know. How does he know I'm thinking about suicide? Anyway, he got done and he went over to the coffee pot. Everybody went back to talking and I made for the door. <clears throat> it's one of, only one of two meetings in 30 years that I've walked out of. And I'm walking down Colorado Boulevard where you see the Rose Parade every year. And my mind is going a million miles an hour, you know. I can't find this higher power. I get up in the morning and I pray and I don't feel anything. Nothing. I can think a lot, but I'm not feeling anything. 
And I get home and my mind's going a million miles an hour and I'm looking for a way out and I can't find one. And then uh, this girl got home, my wife, ex-wife, and she said, yeah, and if you don't get a program soon, I'm leaving. You know? And uh, I had nothing. I was 19 and a half. And the next day, I, Sunday, I guess, I called my sponsor, Don, and I said, can I come over? He said, yeah, I don't know why I should let you. You never listen, but come on over. Now, i got to tell you something. After he passed away, his wife read a letter to me that he wrote that night. The night that he chewed me out at the meeting. And that letter said, Dear Bill, I love you so much. If only there was some way I could give you this thing. Now, he didn't show me that side, and that's a good thing, or I wouldn't be alive. He didn't show it to me that night. Uh, he told me the truth, what I needed to hear. And he didn't care what 150 people were thinking. Well, you know, he didn't care. He told me what I needed to hear, the truth. And because he did, I'm here. And uh, where do you get love like that? Other than here. I've never seen it. So I go over to his house. And he pulled out this big book. And he started reading about we're 100% hopeless apart from divine help. And we have but two alternatives. One to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation the best we could. And the other to accept spiritual help. And he just kept hammering it home. And we finished up about 2 in the morning. And I was on a bicycle at the time. And I got on my bike to ride away. And uh, I was in the dark. And he said, hey, and I turned around. He couldn't see me crying. That was a big thing, you know, don't let anybody see you crying. He said, I love you, but this is between you and God. And I pedaled a few blocks, and I came in front of this church, and I, I've never liked church. Me and church don't get along. I can't sit in it too long. And I saw this stained glass window and a guy holding a sheep and her lamb or something. And I prayed to the stained glass window, you know. I was desperate. I knew that if I didn't get this thing, I was going to die. And I could not feel any of it. And nothing happened. I went home and I put the bike away and I sat down on my front porch steps and it's three in the morning and a little breeze is blowing and the city's quiet and and the dam broke. Because I said, God, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Allah, somebody, somewhere, anybody listening, I'll do anything you say if you just show me how to live. And I meant it from my with all of me, you know. And if I don't hear a voice say, you know, uh, go stand in the middle of Colorado Boulevard. I'd have been there. I'd have got up and went and stood there. I didn't hear any voices. And I didn't feel anything. But something had happened. 
it was a turning point. And here's what happened. Right there, sitting on my front porch steps, I became teachable. Here I had all this stuff memorized. And I admitted to myself that I knew nothing about how to live. And that, that was my whole problem. I knew nothing about how to live. And I went in the house and I tried to sleep and I couldn't sleep and the birds started tweeting and the room got lighter and I decided maybe the answer is in that chapter called How It Works. Maybe that has to do with how God works. So I I got my big book out and I made the decision before I opened the cupboard. I remember I haven't memorized I made the decision that I would do what it said, word for word, if it killed me. And what a difference. Doing and knowing. <laughs> so I started reading. Rarely have we seen. And I got over to the part that we read up there, which was very apropos. And it said, you know, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Yeah, that was me. But I didn't I didn't know how to what do you do about it? And I read down a little farther. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of the selfishness. We must or it kills us. Yeah, now that's where I'm standing. What do you do? I read down a little farther and it said first of all we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. And next hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. And the light bulb went on. And I made the decision that if a thought came out of my head, I refused to follow it. And maybe, just maybe, there was a God. And I would do whatever he put in front of me to do. As if my life depended on it. Because <laughs> it did. And that was my... My turning point. That's where this thing came alive. It entered my life. Not as something I read or something I heard, but something that was alive and working. Because in the next 30 days, I lived through miracle after miracle. I saw my life rearranged and assembled faster than anything I'd ever seen. But inside changes were happening. Because for the first time in my life, it wasn't necessary to have any answers. It was okay just to be an alcoholic, relying on the grace of God to show me what to do and give me the power to do it. And I just did the next indicated thing. And the power was there. And for the first time in my life, I was free from fear. I didn't feel it. And I didn't feel all that anger. For the first time in my life, it was okay to be Bill. It was okay. And what a freedom that is. You don't have to know anything about anything. It's great. You just go to meetings and they call on you and you say, I pass. <laughs> it's okay, you know, to be comfortable in your skin. And, uh, and so... I threw myself into reading this big book in a different way, with a, an eye on what do you do, not what do you know.
And I started doing these things. And I rode a four-step, and my knees were shaking, and I got off the bus and went over to Don's house and shared it with him and uh, got through that. And I, I shared as much as I could, everything, every dark cranny, you know. And uh, I felt even better. And I came home from a meeting, and I was feeling really good. And my wife at the time said, I'm leaving. And I said, what do you mean? I finally have this thing. She said, I found someone else in the program I can relate to better, you know. And, and I'm taking our son, and I'm leaving. And I called up my sponsor, Don, and I was hoping he could talk her out of it, but he couldn't. Next day I went to work. When I got home, they were gone. And I looked in the baby's room, and the crib was gone. Everything was gone. And uh, I went crazy. I know I went crazy because uh, here's how my day would go. I would come home from work and search the house to see if there was any evidence that she'd been there. Look in the baby's room. When I was convinced nobody was there, I'd draw the shades and and pop down on the couch and cry. And then I'd laugh at myself. And then I'd cuss out God. You know, I finally turned my will and my life over. And you take the only thing I love. What's with this? And uh, and then I'd beg him for help. And <clears throat> I went over to my sponsor's house and I... I expected him to say, well, no wonder, you know, you're no good. But he didn't. He said, most people would get out of this problem by transferring their feelings to another woman. But, he said, you'd be just as dependent on the next one. Because, he said, this is not love, this is dependency. And you have to find a way to get free from this to find out what love is. And he said, you know... The only way to get free is to transfer your feelings to God. I said, now, how can you do that? You can't even see it, you know. And he said, well, you just think about it and read this. Just gave me something to read. And I didn't have any choices. I was uh, probably professionals would have given me a lot of antidepressants and stuff and fixed me up, you know. But back then, I guess it was Librium and Valium. Uh, so I didn't go to any professionals. I read my book. And I read in there, I read something that said, the only way we can love God is by loving his creation, for God and his creation are one. And I made the decision I would pretend. Now, you have to understand that I would go to my home group, and she would walk into the meeting with a different guy almost every night. There was 11 guys in my home group that took her home that I counted. And it was hard to go to those meetings and, and hear an answer. Uh, God, I felt alone. And... One time I looked up at the podium and they had a little one day at a time on there and that helped me. Uh, another time I saw Don and, and he helped me. 
One night I called up Don and I said, I don't have any questions. I just need to hear your voice. <coughs> and he said, you call any time. This is the same guy that chewed me out, you know. He said, listen, he said, there's a lot of big shots that aren't going to get this thing. But there's one little guy that is. <laughs> Dang, he's right about that too, you know. <coughs> He said, I said, Don, what do I do about these pictures in my mind? I can't get them out, you know. He said, you just tell your mind. You've given that away. So I went home with those two tools, and I decided to do that. And I'd get up in the morning, and boom, I'd jump right in. The bed's empty, and the only me, and blah, blah, blah. And I'd start right in, you know. Shut up. I'd live by myself. Who cares? <laughs> I'd start right in. Take that out of here, you know. I've given that to God, and I'd talk that loud. And then I'd say, God, you know, how can I be of service today? How can I love you by loving your creation? And things started happening. I had a plant in the living room, and it never got any sun, and it still grew. I had a cat that would come into the house, and I'd say, morning, Father, how are you today, you know? And I'd pet the cat, and sometimes I'd sit there, I'd be reading my big book, and then I'd close it and say, okay, and I'd run over and jump up in my lap. People came by the house, and they expected me to be hurting, and instead their problems would, we'd talk about their problems, and they'd be dumped on the floor, and they'd go away feeling better. And what started out pretending became a reality, because one night I was sitting by myself, and I had a little reading, and I got quiet and tried to listen because I, because prayer is uh, talking and meditation is listening to me. And so I got quiet so I could listen and see if something came to me. And uh, and all of a sudden I felt a presence there with me. And it, it touched me on, on the side of the face, kind of a tingling. Inside, but outside, I don't know how to explain it. But with it came a sense of peace. And I knew that I was never alone again. That wherever I am, that presence is. Because, see, it's been almost 28 years since then, and I have never been without that presence. And so I discovered that God really is inside of everything and everyone. And I began to feel that. And what a difference it is to feel it and know it. And I found out that it wasn't necessary to have someone in order to love them. You didn't have to possess a person. I traded in a selfish, dependent love, uh, love lookalike, for um, love of the whole creation and feeling of the conscious presence of God. And uh, that's all I was ever looking for. And I went to Don and I said, Don, this is fantastic. I have the thing I was looking for all my life. I know I'm not alone. And that this thing loves me more than I could ever love myself. And he said... Uh, would you like to uh, 
uh, give a talk on Wednesday night. Okay, you know, it was put in front of me to do, so I showed up. And Wednesday night I talked for about 15 minutes and sat down because out there there's a, a short speaker and a long speaker, you know. And we had a coffee break, and Don was the, the main speaker. And he got up to the podium, and he started sharing, and about five or ten minutes into the talk, he dropped over dead. Right there. Bam. Now, what you have to understand is two things. He stayed alive long enough to introduce me to God. And that night, that night I like to think that he passed, passed the torch to me, you know. And I've been carrying it ever since. And the torch is that there's a way out. That there really is a God, and it really does work. And I'd like to share a couple other things. And how much time is left? A couple other things about principles before I sit down. And one is during this period that I was trying to love God that I couldn't see, I did a lot of praying and meditating try to get close. And one night I did that and I didn't feel anything. And I went to bed and I was in that in-between place where you're not awake but you're not asleep. And I heard a voice and the voice said, God doesn't need any prayer. God already is. Man needs prayer in order to let God is. And I got up, wow, you know, I went and I wrote that down. I still have it. And I thought, that's great. I like that, you know. Yeah, this electricity lighting these lights. It's available constantly. But if you don't throw that switch, we'll be sitting here in the dark. And I don't care if you have a master's degree in electrical engineering. And you, and you wrote a really good 80-page thesis. We're going to be sitting in the dark unless you hit that switch, you know. And I know that from personal experience. <laughs> so, God is constantly available just like that. I know this. I didn't read it. But, I have to create an opening. And so I found out that if I start my day by creating an opening through which God can flow, that the power's added. I can come up here and talk when I'm scared to death of people, you know. I mean, there's many. Uh, the power's added. And I thought that that was something unique and something that I had discovered. And then I got to reading this book a little more. And this is so great. This is the whole foundation. Chuck C. told me that he, he never could understand how to explain to people how to surrender. And I'm going to explain it. Because I discovered it in this book. It was there the whole time. 
It says in the chapter into action, every day is a day when we, that's you and me, must, don't tell me there's no musts, carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will be done, not mine. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. Well, that's just what I discovered, you know. He knew it all the time. They knew it. But the second part of that is awesome. It says, we can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It's the proper use of the will. Hey. And then, you know, over in the 12 and 12, it talks about our whole problem had been the misuse of willpower. We tried to bombard our problems with it instead of trying to align it with God's will for us. Wow. So, it's not useless. I am supposed to be doing something. Well, Chuck used to put it like this. He said, the answer's in the answer. The answer's not in the problem. So I had to go, you know, a few years and read and everything before I figured out what he meant. Anything that I want to let go of, including my alcoholism, that I have to do is take it and set it out by the curb, just like garbage, for the garbage man to collect. And then throw myself into this. And when I look back one of these days and look out my window, it's gone. And I don't care what the obsession is. I don't care what it is. You can set it out there. And if you throw yourself into doing this, when you look back somewhere, it'll be gone. And then you'll be saying, I don't know when it was removed, but it was removed. Because that's what happens. And I thought, this is great. You know, AA has discovered such a fantastic thing, this praying all the time. And then, when I was three years sober, I got over my prejudice, some of it, towards uh, organized religion. And I was walking down the street, and there was a Bible in the window, and it had a jeans. I like jeans. I don't dress like this. And there was a, a jean cover, you know, <clears throat> denim cover to, on this Bible. And that looks cool. And it called me, and I went in, and I bought it. And, and then a few months later, I actually opened it. You know. <laughs> and eventually, I found there's this guy named Paul, and he said, we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Well, dang, I thought A.A. invented that. You know? <laughs> it had been there all the time. So, that has been my life, really. I get up in the morning and I, I create an opening. You know, I used to think of God as a noun. God. And I couldn't get anywhere with it. But God's not a noun. God's a verb. An action verb. And when I create an opening, God happens. It happens to me. This is what we were like, what happened, and what we're like. And I say, uh, this was a great day, and I was in the right place at the right time, and this person showed up. That's God happening, harmony. And Madeline shared with you about uh, how we got together, and we had both given up. 
her on her side of the town and me on my side of the town. Just figured that I'm just going to commit myself to working, doing God's will, and I'll just stay by myself, you know. And and yet, when the time was right, uh, we met. And it turned out we were walking down the same road. We were practicing the same principles. And it's been heaven. I have a little piece of heaven. I mean, I love her so much. And and it sure isn't something I deserve. We just built a house up in Nanahala National Forest, and uh, it is so beautiful. We looked through the windows here a couple weeks ago, and there was golds and reds and and greens and browns and oranges and pinks and this little trout stream out front and <coughs> quiet and I hear God in the wind, you know. I mean, I just love it. And this is the same guy that was bumming nickels and dimes when he was doing it his way. Um, so you see, my insides match my outsides today. I'm at peace with myself. I'm not fighting anybody. I have ceased to fight anybody. I don't have to. Today I just create an opening and I say, God, show me what you want to do and give me thy power to carry it out. And sometimes there's nothing to do except enjoy my wife. Um, and sometimes there's plenty to do. But I just have to stay ready and stay willing. And I do. And so I guess to wrap it all up, I'll have to say that uh, God bless Don. What an amazing man. God bless all of you. And I hope you all have a wonderful Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.